So just in case no one told you yet, this is Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. So the theme is about resurrection. Now, when a king dies, at the very moment that he dies, a new king is also pronounced. I always see this in films. If it will say, the king is dead, and then another will say, long live the king. There's an immediate transition of this dead king to the new king, and it's immediate. I don't know how it went with the former queen and Charles, how he became king. But let me show you an excerpt from 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 10 through 12. 1 Kings 2, 10 to 12. This is a transition from David to his son Solomon. It says, Then David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. And the time that David reigned over Israel was 40 years. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 30 years in Jerusalem. Watch this. So Solomon sat on the throne of David, his father, and his kingdom was firmly established. From verse 11 to verse 12, there's a, a very quick transition of kingship. David reigned, Solomon sat down on the throne. David died, Solomon became king. See, all the kings in Israel died. That's the ending of all the kings in Israel, no matter how rich or famous or how intelligent or smart or just or majestic, all of the kings in Israel died. Their bodies lay cold, dead, and corrupted. And David knows about this one. As a matter of fact, David wrote about this when he wrote the book of Psalms, some of the chapters in the book of Psalms. He wrote Psalm chapter 16, and he wrote about this idea of going to the grave. Listen to Psalm 16, verses 7 through 10. I will bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption." This passage is about David's thoughts about going to the grave, of dying. The question is, why was he thinking about dying? Why was he thinking of writing this psalm and for, in fact, he was enjoying the blessings of living in fellowship with God? I think there are moments in our lives, too, that we come to this, a certain moment that we think about our future, that we think about afterlife. But David seemed to have foreseen the future, or this could be taken as a prophecy. And in fact, in this prophecy, his reflection, he mentioned his heart is glad, his whole being rejoices, and his flesh dwells securely. When when a person dies, David could not imagine himself floating in the air like a ghost. So his understanding is that when he dies, he dies in the grave. He stays there in the grave. That's why he expresses confidence in God that God will not abandon him or God will not leave him alone or forget about him in Sheol. Sheol is the grave. It's the place of the dead. In our modern parlance, it's a cemetery or the grave. But then he doubled down when he said, or let your holy one see corruption. See, this word corruption in Hebrew is shachat. Shachat is decay. It's another word for the pit or the grave. So Sheol is another word for the grave, and Shachat is another word for the grave, but it means decay. So what he's saying is that 
you will not allow me to go in the grave and decay. That's what he's saying there. Let your holy one see decay. What he's saying is that there must be something more to this life than just living this kind of life. The grave cannot be the ultimate destination of all that is good and beautiful and living in fellowship with God. So he's expressing not just so much of his hope in God, but his prayer to God, that God will not abandon him in Sheol. And this thought, the disciples of Jesus Christ, later on in the book of Acts, picked up when he, they preached the gospel. See, Paul, and together with his friends, went to a synagogue in Antioch. They preached to the bunch of Jews, and he quoted this psalm in chapter 16. You'll find this in Acts chapter 13, 35 to 37. Paul was preaching inside the synagogue full of Jews, and then he quoted this. He said, 35, therefore he also says in another psalm, he's quoting David, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. This is originally Psalm 16. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, that's a euphemism for death, and he was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, shakat, corruption, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. It's very confusing when you first read this. But what was he talking about? What, what corruption? Who is corrupted and who did not see corruption? Was he talking about Lazarus? Definitely not. Of course not. But we know because we know what happened to Lazarus. Lazarus re reached four days of putrefaction or decay. He was rescued after four days. Lazarus. So when David quoted Psalm chapter 16, verse 10, verse 10, he was saying that David was trying to prophesy about this one guy whom God will raise from the dead who will not see corruption. He was expressing, though, his confidence that God will not allow him to rot in the grave. But we know what happened to David. David died and his body decomposed. So was he talking about himself? Or was he talking about a different person? Did the prophecy fail or did it not? Because you see, the prophecy is not really about David. The prophecy must be about someone else whose body will be laid on a tomb but will not see decay. That's the point of Psalm chapter 16, verse 13. But who is this guy? Who is this guy who was laid on a tomb that did not see decay? This is where Matthew comes in. So I'm assuming we already know what Sunday is all about. But just in case, no one told you yet, Sunday is also called the Resurrection Day. All right? I hope this is not the first time you've heard about this one. Sunday is also called the Resurrection Day. I've been asked by countless of people why we worship on Sunday. I get that. There's a confusion there because the Jews worship on Sabbath, the Saturday. But Christians worship on Sunday. So what happened there? Why are we not celebrating Sabbath? Why aren't we not following the commandment to rest on Sabbath day? Kind of confusing though, but we have to remember that Sabbath is about rest. It's not worship. Those two things are different. Worship is not rest. So Sabbath is different from Sunday. So let me explain further. Now, the Israelites have different feasts. Sometimes the feasts last for a week and sometimes more, sometimes 10 days. One of the most famous feasts that they have is Passover. One is Yom Kippur. Another is uh, Feast of Weeks. 
But every feasts are different. And those feasts that last for days are the days that they worship. All right? It doesn't have to be Sabbath or Saturday or Sunday or Monday or Tuesday. It can be all week. They're worshiping all week. But on individual basis, all one needs to do in any day of the week will bring a sacrifice, go to the priest. The priest will prepare the sacrifice, burn in the altar, and get some of the meat, bring it back to the one who offered, and eat before the Lord. You see, in the Old Testament, worship is really eating before the Lord. So what we will do after in the party room is worship, eating before the Lord. See, worship in the Old Testament is actually the eating before the Lord. So why do we worship on Sunday? The short answer to that is because it's Sunday. Let me explain. According to Matthew, Jesus died Friday, sundown. Friday evening, a certain Joseph requested the body of Jesus to be taken down. And ordinarily, those who were crucified were left hanging on the cross for days until they rot or decay. The Hebrew word for that, again, is shakat. It was meant to capture the attention of the people. It was meant to to get their imagination going so that they will not follow this guy. People who are crucified in the time of the Romans are people who committed criminal offenses, capital punishment, because they committed treason. You see, this is meant to shock the senses. This also happens in Mexico. Whenever drug cartels will will punish people who double-cross them, they will decapitate their bodies and hang them in public. It's meant to alert and to warn the people not to cross them. See, the Romans are, are very good at this. They have perfected the idea of killing and suffering. But then, Jesus died on Friday. It was the week of Passover. Passover is celebrated for seven days. And the beginning of that is Saturday. So Jesus died before the feast began, Friday evening. So Pilate gave the body away. So Joseph of Arimathea requested the body. Pilate gave the body to, to Joseph of Arimathea. He was granted the body. But I cannot help myself but think about the irony of the story. Why is that? Because Joseph, according to the Bible, was a disciple of Jesus. But then he was also a member of the Sanhedrin. You know the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is the one who plotted the execution of Jesus. So who's this guy really? His disciple, at the same time, is part of the Sanhedrin. He must know the case. He must know everything in detail about the conspiracy to kill Jesus. He must know exactly the charges why Jesus was indicted. So I find it ironic that he was present there on the trial of Jesus, but he also asked for the body of Jesus to be buried in the grave. What I find ironic, though, is that he knew that Jesus Christ was crucified on a cross, and Jesus Christ claimed to be the Son of God. Jesus Christ forgave the sins of the people. He knew that Jesus Christ was able to raise Lazarus from the dead. But the point is, why did he die? If Jesus claims to be all these things, why did he die? I mean, it's ironic because in the understanding of Joseph of Arimathea, any Jew that was left hanging on the cross, that was executed as a criminal, is also cursed by God. So Jesus exactly is cursed by God. He was hanging on the tree. He was crucified. He got the curse. 
That means he cannot be buried in, in any dignified burial ground. Nobody should be buried with dignity if he was hanging on the cross. And Jesus was like that. So my question is, why did Joseph of Arimathea ask Pilate to bury him in his own new grave? What was he hoping to do? Was he trying to pay for the sins of Jesus? What was he trying to do here? Now, the scriptures did not give us any reason. The scriptures simply said, instead, he took the body, wrapped it in a linen cloth, and then laid it in his own new tomb. And then the Bible said he rolled the stone. The stone is meant to protect the body of Jesus from getting eaten by wild animals. It's not meant, it's not meant to protect Jesus from coming out because the body is dead, you see. But the stone is there to protect the body from getting eaten by wild animals. When the body was put in there in the tomb, it suffered rigor mortis. Rigor mortis is the absence of ATP. ATP is the substance that keeps your muscles healthy. So that means without the ATP, rigor mortis, your body is stiff. After 24 hours of dying, the body of Jesus will suffer rigor mortis. After 24 hours, it will suffer putrefaction. Putrefaction is where the, the tissues begin to decay. Shakhat. This idea is what Jesus went after Lazarus when he died. You see, his best friend was Lazarus. Lazarus died. And Jesus knew about it, but he did not go to Bethany before Lazarus died. He waited four days. And so after four days, he went to Bethany. Lazarus was already in the tomb. Putrefaction, decaying already. And then he talked to Mary. And then he said, let's go to the tomb. I want to see Lazarus. And Martha knew about this one. So Martha almost kind of objected. It's like, it's been four days. You know what happened. So in John chapter 11, verse 39, there was an objection about, about this one. John eleven thirty nine 39 says, Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, it's not even the sister of Lazarus, but the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead for four days. She meant putrefaction. It's decaying already. So think about it. She's got a point. Lazarus, by this time, has reached the stage of decay. It's a terrible smell. It's the smell of death. It's the smell that David had in mind while he was writing Psalm chapter 16. You will not let your Holy One see decay. The smell of death over man. This is the same smell of death that God warned Adam and Eve, if you eat the tree, you will die. You will have this kind of smell. I can tolerate bad smell. I can tolerate bad breath. I can tolerate myself. I can probably tolerate fart. I can tolerate armpit. But I'm not sure if I can tolerate the smell of decaying bodies. You see, when Lazarus came out, the scripture said that he was bound with linen strips all over his body, his face, his feet, his body. What particularly? Why his face? Because after four days, the face would not be recognizable. It has already decayed. So it was wrapped with linen. And when Jesus called out, Lazarus came with that linen cloth over his face. This is the same idea that Joseph of Arimathea did to Jesus Christ. He wrapped him in linen cloth, put him in his, uh, in his uh, tomb, and rolled the stone. 
Only this time, it's different with Jesus. So we're kind of asking, who is it that David prophesied in Psalm 16? Someone will be laid on the tomb, but will not see decay. It's not Lazarus. It's not David. Who could it be? I want to show you something cool when you're reading the Gospels, and I hope that you're reading the Gospels in your own time. If you think that the Gospels are simple stories, then you've got to listen to this. If you have your Bibles with you, whether it's print or from your phone, I want you to look at your Bibles very carefully. Or maybe just, you cannot look at the screen. The screen has no paragraphs. But you look at your Bibles, Matthew 27, verse 57 to 61. If you look at your Bibles, there are three movements here. Every paragraph is a, is a movement. So I want to show you three movements. Matthew 27, 57 to 61. Matthew 27, 62 to 66. And Matthew 28, verses 1 through 10. These are three movements. The first paragraph is about the burial of Jesus Christ. Joseph Arimathea went to Pilate. Pilate granted him the body, wrapped in linen cloth, put in a tomb, rolled a stone. First paragraph. That's Matthew 27, 57 to 61. Second paragraph, Matthew 27, 62 to 66. The high priests and the Sanhedrin went to Pilate, told Pilate that it should be sealed. Pilate granted. So they sealed the tomb, put a guard outside the tomb. That's the second movement. You may call it the follow-up. So the first one you can call, you can call it the pledge. The second one you can call it the follow-up. But then you get, go to Matthew 28, verses 1 to 10. It says, Sunday morning, an angel came, rolled the stone away, the tomb was empty. And Jesus was standing outside the tomb. I call it the prestige. What's this all about? See, in 2006, when I was still younger, there was a movie called The Prestige. Anyone saw this? Okay. 2006, I understand. It was about two rival magicians who kept everything hidden from themselves. Uh, this, is, this is about two magicians who are trying to, you know, to outdo each other. And there is this uh, guy whose name is Michael Caine. He's uh, doing the movie. He was explaining the three acts in Magic Trick. He said that all Magic Tricks has three acts or three movements. Number one is the pledge. Second is the turn. Third is the prestige. What is the pledge? The pledge is when a magician shows something ordinary. Nothing. Ordinary. And then the turn. It's when the magician does something to the ordinary, and that ordinary disappears. The pledge is when that something that disappeared comes back to a surprise. And you say, wow, how, you did, how did you do it? So there's a pledge, a turn, and the prestige. I want to show you something cool. When you're reading these three movements in Matthew, there will be a pledge, a turn, and a prestige. If you're looking closely, again, the pledge is when Joseph of Arimathea wrapped Jesus, put him in a tomb. There's the body. There's a presentation, something ordinary. And then the turn. The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin sealed the tomb to make sure nobody gets out put a guard outside the tomb. And then the prestige, Matthew 28, 1 through 10. Angel came, opened the tomb, and suddenly he was gone. He was seen outside of the tomb. That is when you say, wow, how did you do it? 
That's when you clap your hands. Wow, how'd you do it? You see, the whole idea is this, is that what happened in the Bible is not a magic trick. Because magic tricks have natural explanations. Miracles, on the other hand, have no natural explanations. There's no secret. There's no trick. Nothing is hidden. Magic is called trick because the magicians hide something from the viewers. Magic is sort of an illusion where everything can be explained. Miracle is not a trick. Miracle is supernatural, and no magician in the history of mankind has ever attempted to die and then rise from the grave. No one. No one in history died and rise from the grave. The closest that we have is Harry Houdini. Anyone know? Harry Houdini. All right. Harry Houdini, in 1926, performed this act in front of a live audience in New York City, where what he did was went inside the coffin, that was the pledge, and then he was buried, topped with soil and cement, disappeared. That was the turn. After one hour, he failed to come out from the grave. I mean, <laughs> come on, how, how would you do that? You cannot do that. He was then dug out of the grave, rushed to the hospital. After two days, he died. <laughs> His case, per peritonitis, if that makes sense to you. His case was that his appendix burst open while he was trying to dug himself out of the grave. So he died out of infection. Harry Houdini failed to do the prestige. Look at the passage, Matthew 27, verses 57 to 61. Jesus' body was taken down from the cross and buried. Second paragraph, the Pharisees sealed the tomb. Third paragraph, Matthew 28, verse 9, the tomb was open, angel was there, the tomb was empty, Jesus was outside. And then verse 9, it says, And behold, Jesus met them and said, by them, it was the women. He said, Mabuhay. No, no, not Mabuhay. He said, Greetings. The exact literal translation of greeting is Kairete. Rejoice. I mean, come on. Rejoice. After, after 39 lashes, after being crucified, after being mocked, now he's saying, Rejoice. There must be some reason for that. He said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. This is very interesting. Now, it was not an illusion because he was really buried. The tomb was sealed. It was not an illusion. Then Sunday morning, he was standing there and saying, greetings. How did he do that? See, the resurrection is no magic trick. The resurrection of Jesus was not a magic trick. The official position of the entire scientific community based on the laws of physics is that the resurrection would have never happened and could have never happened. Why? Because dead people do not come back to life. That's normal. Dead people do not come back to life. But when I say dead people, I don't mean clinically dead people. Because clinically dead people are not really dead people. They can be revived, resuscitated, CPR, and they will be revived. I mean, dead people are the ones suffering from rigor mortis and putrefaction. They cannot be revived. Jesus Christ was dead, and now he's alive. You see, the Romans have perfected the art of death. They know when a person is dead. That's why criminals are left on the cross for days until their bodies rot 
So, Jesus was crucified on Friday. But because it was the start of a Passover, the Jews asked Pilate for the body of Jesus Christ. And to make sure that the execution was complete, according to the Gospel of John, the soldiers broke the legs of the thieves hanging on both sides of Jesus Christ to make sure they suffocate, asphyxiate, to hasten the death. And it happened. But according to Jesus, to John, they did not break the legs of Jesus because he's already dead. The Roman soldiers know he's dead. Now, the Roman soldiers are not medical professionals like Filipino-trained nurses here. But they know what it means for a person to die. In fact, they have perfected the art of killing a person. They know Jesus is dead. But they don't want to leave anything to chance. So one of the soldiers took his spear, pierced the side of Jesus, puncturing his lungs to make sure he's really dead. I mean, Jesus is dead. So they brought the body. But you think about it. How could someone survive 39 lashes? I mean, 40 is considered already dead, deadly. So 39. But then add to that is exhaustion, hunger, dehydration, loss of blood, and finally asphyxiation resulting in cardiac arrest. And bonus to that, the deep puncture on the side. Now think about this carefully. The Bible said from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that from 12 noon up to 3 p.m. there was darkness. In your Bible, sometimes it says from the sixth hour to the ninth hour, but it's the same. From 12 noon up to 3 p.m. there was darkness. And at 3 p.m., Jesus breathed his last. That's when he was dead, 3 p.m. But then according to Matthew 28, it was only in the evening when Joseph of Arimathea asked for the body of Jesus. That means from 3 p.m. up to 6 p.m., somewhere in those hours, Jesus is dead. He could not be holding his breath. <laughs> I can only hold my breath for two minutes. I mean, Jesus could not be holding his breath for three hours. He could not be faking it for three hours. Jesus really dead from 3 p.m. at the 6 p.m. No matter how you look at it, the evidence is overwhelming. This cannot be a trick. Jesus is really dead. So when you see Matthew 28, verse 9, they met Jesus and Jesus said greetings. They immediately did something very interesting. The, they, the Bible said, they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Why would they hold his feet, and worship him. Now, Jesus could not be a ghost because if he was a ghost that appeared to them on Sunday morning, they would have run. Besides, ghosts don't appear in the morning. Anyone seen ghosts in the morning? It only appears at night. Jesus appeared Sunday morning. So it's, it's not a ghost. But how do we know that it's not a ghost? Because the Bible said they took hold of his feet. I mean, ghosts by definition are spirits. Immaterial, without substance, they took hold of Jesus' feet and worshipped him. I think Matthew's tried to set us up so that there's no other possible ending but the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, the women did not just hold his feet. Now, Matthew specifically said they worshipped him. Why would they worship him? He doesn't play with words. The word that Matthew used is proskonesis. What is this really? It literally means to kneel down. Worship, though in English translation, but in Greek, it's kneel down. Now, it makes sense. They took hold of his feet. They have to kneel down. 
But why did our English translators use the word worship if all the women did was to kneel down? Because kneel down is not equivalent of worship. When I talk to my daughter, because she's poor, I have to kneel down. It doesn't mean I worship. When I tie her shoes, I have to kneel down. It doesn't mean I worship. When I get in trouble for not washing dishes, I kneel down. It doesn't mean I worship. Kneeling is not equivalent to worship. But again, you read the book of Matthew and you see the temptation of Jesus Christ. There were three temptations in the wilderness, right? One of the temptations is that when the devil brought him to the highest of the mountains, show him all the kingdoms of the world, and he said in Matthew 4 verse 9, all this I will give it to you if you will fall down and worship me. Something is off in here. Falling down or kneeling down and worship me. He used two words for this one. Fall down and worship me. Fall down is one word in Greek. It's pipto. Worship is kneel down. Literally, it's proskonesis. So, so if you take it literally, what the devil said to Jesus is, if you will kneel down and fall down. I will give you all the kingdoms of the world if you but kneel down and fall down. So the English translators used worship. And you may say, well, it's just kneeling down. It's not really worship. It's just kneeling down. You put your knee down. No, because Jesus responded and he understood the context. Matthew 4 verse 10. This is what Jesus said. He said, Satan, be gone, for it's written, you shall worship, proskodesis, the Lord your God and him only you shall serve. So in the understanding of Jesus, worship or proskodesis means one thing. Worship is not just kneeling down because the combination of pipto to fall down and proskodesis to kneel down is equivalent to worship. You can only worship the Lord your God. So what's interesting here is that the women took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Could there be other explanation than worship? See, the women understood the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. That means they cannot worship another person. The women know this. And yet they worship Jesus. Why did they worship Jesus? Do you think the women know about the Scriptures? I think so. The women understood Deuteronomy 6.13. That's where Jesus quoted, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. If the women know about this, were they in direct violation of God's commandment to worship any other than Him? So the question is, why on God's green earth will they have compelling reason to worship Jesus? Why did they worship Jesus? See, Lazarus came back from the dead. Nobody worshipped him. Moses did some miracles. Nobody worshipped him. Elijah and Elisha, not this Elisha here, different Elisha. Elijah and Elisha did a lot of miracles. Nobody worshipped them. The ability to rise from the dead and make miracles does not make one worthy of worship. So the women, what I'm saying is that the women did not worship Jesus just because he came back from the dead. And we are mistaken to think that resurrection is the reason why Jesus was worshipped. It goes deeper than that. They worship Jesus because he was vindicated by God. What do I mean by that? See, Jesus again was declared criminal, cursed, hanging on the tree, the enemy of God. 
in Jewish theology, she, he should be staying in Sheol. He should be rotting in the grave. So it would be impossible for the psalm to be fulfilled in Jesus. And yet Jesus rose from the grave. He has defeated death. He has conquered Sheol. He has defied the decay. No one has ever pulled this act, not in the history of mankind, only Jesus. So there's only one explanation to the resurrection. God vindicated him. In a modern parlance, it means God exonerated him from all the charges. God justified him from all the charges. He was telling the truth. How could Jesus have risen from the dead? How, how did he do that? That's a question. The answer to that is Bethany. What happened in Bethany? Bethany is where Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. Bethany is also is where Jesus healed Simon the leper from leprosy. Bethany is where he said, I am the resurrection and the life. When he was talking to Martha, he was using his words very carefully. He said, I am the resurrection, Anastasis. That's where you get the name Anastasia. Anastasis means resurrection from the dead. And I am life, Zoe, life. The question is, how could Jesus claim that he's the resurrection and the life if he knows that after a week he will die? How could he claim that? That's an absurd claim. But what does it mean to be dead? To die is to go back to the ground. That's what the philosopher said in Ecclesiastes. All come from dust, and to dust all shall return. That's what we do during funeral. To dust you came, dust you shall return. But isn't that how Adam began? You think about it. Adam was formed from the ground, and the Bible said God breathed into him the breath of life, and he became a living soul, a living being, which means originally... He was dust. He was just a lump of dirt on the ground. And yet God breathed into him the breath of life, anastasis, resurrection. What Jesus is saying is that I am the resurrection. I'm the breath of God filling the lungs of Adam to make him a living soul, a living being. See, he's the life that makes dead people live. One preacher said, Jesus came not to make bad people good. He came to make dead people live. If Jesus claims to be the life, the resurrection of life, and then he died, does it give you any question? Does that, I mean, if we can question his credibility then, if he's the resurrection, why did he die? How can life die? But it's like asking, how can God become less than God? So for all intents and purposes, Jesus died a physical death. We affirm that. There's no, there's no point of resurrection if he did not die in the first place. He tasted death for our sake. But it's also remember that Jesus Christ is more than just a man. He's more than just a teacher. He's more than just a prophet. He's more than just a rabbi. He's more than just a miracle worker. Jesus also claims to be the Son of God. Jesus Christ claims to be the Messiah. In other words, Jesus claims to be God in human flesh. That's an outstanding claim for anyone. He made this incredible assertion. Now, there's one, one other occasion when he said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. 
that is amazing. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Because I and the Father are one. Wait, 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 hang on. To the understanding of the Jews, it means one thing. Jesus claims to be a deity, divine, God. See, give you, let me give you one interesting thing. You find forgiveness in the, in the Bible. You can only find forgiveness in the temple. Why is that? If you want to find forgiveness, bring a sacrifice, give it to the priest. The priest will chop the animals and prepare it and burn it. And then you will find forgiveness. Why? Because God lives in the temple, only in the temple. But what's interesting is that Jesus would forgive people left and right without having them to go to the temple. What is he trying to do? He's not just mimicking God. He's acting like God. Because forgiveness is an exclusive privilege of a divine God. Well, that means is that Jesus Christ himself is acting like God. So either Jesus is fraud or he's telling the truth. If he was fraud, then he deserved to die, by all means. But if he's telling the truth, the fact of the resurrection proves that he's not a fraud, that he's telling the truth, that he's really the actual God in human flesh. And even though he died on a cross, hanged on a tree, executed as a criminal, Yahweh vindicated him, exonerated him, justified him, acquitted him. Therefore, the women did not hold his feet and worship him just because he resurrected from the dead. See, the women took hold of his feet and worshipped him because he claimed to be God. Resurrection was a vindication of his claims. See, in the same way, we don't believe that Jesus Christ, just because he resurrected from the dead, we believe him because of his claims, because of what he said. You see, when Jesus was explaining about this claim, he said that he's the bread of life. And then he said, you have to eat my flesh. And after that, some of his disciples scattered, went away from Jesus, because they were offended. How can we eat your flesh? I mean, we're not cannibals. The scriptures prohibit us from eating flesh. How much more you? So they did not understand. They took him literally, ate his flesh. And so Jesus turned to his disciples and said, what about you? Are you also going away? And Peter said something in John 6, 68. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is before the resurrection. So that means Jesus is already claiming, even before he died, even before he resurrected from the dead, that he's the only Holy One of God. Jesus Christ is the Son of God before the resurrection. Jesus Christ is already the Son of God before the resurrection. Nothing changed. He is who he claims to be. And the resurrection only proves it. You see the connection here. God brought Adam to life, but he got the curse of death. We are all descendants of Adam, therefore we have the curse of death. We're all going to die. That explains the wrinkles and the white hair and the stiff necks. A couple of days ago, I woke up. I had this sore in my neck, stiff neck. It never happened when I was younger. But I get it. We're getting old, you know. 
So you have maybe different experiences. So now I get nervous when I go to sleep. Seriously, getting old is our euphemism for slow death. Aging is our euphemism for slow death. Because we are all going there, slow death. That's reality. That's why we have arthritis and diabetes and high blood pressure. Because we're all going there. See, here's the thing. Adam could have cured death if he had access to the Garden of Eden, to the Tree of Life. There was two trees in the Garden of Eden. The forbidden tree and the Tree of Life. He could have cured death had he had he access to that, but he was kicked out. And therefore, he died. You see, we have the cure for death. It's not the over-the-counter medicine from CVS. It's not another vaccine. Don't worry about it. We have the cure for death. We have the cure for death, and that is the tree of life. Now listen. Don't you find it interesting that the biblical authors intentionally chose the words, hang on the tree, to explain what happened to Jesus Christ on the cross, hanging on the tree. What is hanging on the tree except fruits, right? See, the reason why Jesus said we have to eat his flesh, in every communion, we affirm what Jesus said, this is my body, eat it in remembrance of me. That's the reason why we eat the bread in his body. The image of Jesus hanging on a tree is an invitation to eat the fruit that gives life. When you look at the cross, when you look at the dead, lifeless body of Jesus Christ, you're looking at the tree of life because he's the fruit that will cure death. He's the fruit from the tree, the source of life. When you look at the lifeless body of Jesus Christ hanging on the cross, you see nothing but death. But then when you look at the empty tomb, you know death has been defeated. You know that death was conquered. So the second thing Jesus said to the woman after saying greetings, he said, do not be afraid. I think this is the message of Sunday morning. Do not be afraid. When death stares at you in the face, do not be afraid. When sickness bothers you, do not be afraid. When troubles come your way, do not be afraid. If there's anything that stresses your heart, that makes you feel afraid, do not be afraid. This is the message Jesus, and this is the message for us today. Do not be afraid. Why? Because Jesus conquered death. He has robbed the grave of its power. See, the message is very clear. According to Paul, we are more than conquerors. To him who loved us and gave himself for us. And because of that, we know that Jesus lives. So that the women worshipped him on the day of resurrection. So why don't we? That's the reason why we worship. Because Jesus Christ is alive. So why don't we stand up and worship God? Seeing God is the reason for the resurrection. He's the power behind the resurrection. Amen?